To illustrate his point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, You have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead, and he has come back to life. He is lost, but now he is found. Thank you. There's a brand of clothing called Life is Good. They come up with all sorts of catchy phrases and and pictures, and usually they deal with outdoor life. Any of you heard of them? Okay, any of you have any of their shirts? A couple? Well, he's got a good cup, yes. Uh, life is good. They have a shirt with a hiker on it in the woods with a caption that reads, Not all who wander are lost. Not all who wander are lost. It's a great phrase, actually originally written by J.R.R. Tolkien, and there is a ton of truth in that. Having a sincere love for the outdoors and backpacking myself, I really appreciate that phrase. What's funny about that phrase is that it really fits with the story we're spending four weeks in, this story of the prodigal son. You just heard the story in its entirety. Now you got to hear it last week in its entirety before the sermon, and and hopefully you spent some time in it throughout the week. 
The subtitle that begins this section in Scripture is often called the prodigal son. And we looked last week at that word prodigal. Now other subtitles call this section the parable of the lost son. The parable of the lost son. That's what it says in in my Bible. Now in the spirit of Mike being a teacher, I want to give a pop quiz. Okay, No thinking, no conversing, just by a simple show of hands. Uh, older brother, younger brother. How many of you think the younger brother was the lost one? What do you get? Come on. Really? Trick question. Trick question. Okay, those who raised your hand, you're right. I think you're wrong. How's that for a trick answer? I think you're wrong. Remember, not all who wander are lost. When we think of the word lost, oftentimes we think of uh, what a dictionary may say, uh, not being able to be found or not knowing where you're at, perhaps on the edge of no return. I don't think that described the younger son. You see, he knew all along what he was doing, and he knew where he was going. He chose to ask his dad for that inheritance early. He chose to sell the inheritance or to take it and squander it. He chose to live in a way that was not looked highly upon by his family or his cultural family. He chose to work for the pig farmer, and he chose to humble himself and come back to his father and beg for mercy. This younger son may have wandered, but I don't think he was lost. Now I know, or I hope, that many of you would argue with me on that point. You would say, but wait, James, even the dad in the story calls his son lost. Verse 24 and verse 32, verse 32 reads, We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. If you argue with me, if you choose to say, yeah, James, you're wrong, I'll probably admit you're right, but I'm right, and we're both wrong and right at the same time somehow. Let me, let me state my case as to why I think it was not the younger son that was lost. This word lost at the end of verse 32 in Greek looks like this, and it's pronounced apolume. Yes, one of the short definitions for this word is lose. But the other definitions, the more literal definitions are to destroy, to cut off completely, to perish with a certain end in sight. It means to have uh, absolute destruction, to cause to be lost by experiencing a miserable end. It's a more powerful definition than just not knowing where we're at, isn't it? I think this definition describes the older son to a T. Listen again to his scene in the story. This is Luke 15, verse 25 through 28. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry. The brother was angry. The Greek word for that is orgizo, and it means irritated or provoked. Oh, I thought it was something I said. Yes, it may have looked something like that. Wow, good picture. 
Um, this word in the Greek uh, is positive when it's inspired by God. It's positive when it's inspired by God, but when it's not, when it's negative, it always arises from the flesh. In that case, it's sinful anger, which is focused more on punishing the offender rather than the moral content of the offense. Listen to a couple of other times this word was used by Jesus in some of the stories he told. In the story of the great feast, the master had sent out a bunch of invitations to people to come and and celebrate with him and, and, and eat with him, but everyone started making excuses as to why they couldn't come. And the servant came back and he told his master this, Luke 14, 21 and following. The servant returned and told his master what they had said, and his master was furious. That's that word. And they said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the towns and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there is still more room. So the master said, go out in the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. Said the king was furious. It's the same root word as that. Now another time, Jesus told the story of an unforgiving debtor. Remember that one? Another king had pardoned this man who had this huge debt, unpayable debt. And then he sent him on his way only to learn that that same man would later not forgive the debt of somebody who could have repaid him. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 31 and 34. When some of the other servants saw this, they too were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king, the Orgizo king, sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. Angry king. Again, the same word. Now, if you're a thinking person, you may be thinking to yourself and trying to connect the dots. Wait, wait a second. Wait a second. James, you said that this word, when inspired by God, is positive. These two stories that you just told me are, are about justice being found. Thus, isn't that something that's inspired by God? You know, if you chose to take that argument, I'd say you're probably right. But today we're looking at the story of the older brother, the response of the older brother. You remember the older brother came in from the fields. He heard what was going on and he got angry. The older brother was angry, the text tells us. Can you picture this? You ever had a sibling you got mad at? Ooh. Can you think of some of the names you called them? Don't say them out loud. Again, we've got kids in here. Can you think of some of the devious thoughts that sprung up in your heart? Can you just picture the rage that grew up within you? Caleb can. He's raising his hand. (laughs) Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, If you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder, if you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. This brother 
was angry. So let's put some of these puzzle pieces together. The word lost that we're looking at really means to be utterly cut off, to have a permanent destruction. The word angry that we're looking at is positive only when it's inspired by God and not when driven by the flesh. Jesus says our anger leads us close to destruction, close to hell itself, which leads me to say that it was the older son that was much closer to being lost than it was the younger son. His anger was from the flesh. The older son's anger sprung up from the flesh. Now, you may be wondering, how can you say that, James? You weren't there. You don't know him. You don't know his reaction. You're right. But actions speak louder than words. And when you combine words with actions, it paints a really clear picture of what was going on inside the heart of this older son. Luke chapter 15, verse 28. The older brother was angry, and he wouldn't go in. He refused to go in. The older brother is taking his own revenge on the father without even saying a word at this point. Author Kenneth Bailey writes this. He said, the older son's response is crucially significant. He refuses to enter the banquet hall where the guests have already gathered. In any social situation in that time, a banquet or no banquet, the male members of the family must come in and shake hands with the guests, even if they don't stay and visit. They cannot stay aloof if they are anywhere in the vicinity of the house. Failure to do so, to fulfill this courtesy, is a personal insult to the guests and to the father as host. The older son knows this, and thereby in his action, it is an intentional public insult to his father. An intentional public insult compared to the private insult earlier in the story that the younger son did. There's another time in Scripture this type of thing takes place. It's in Esther chapter 1. If you remember the story, the king summoned Queen Vashti to come to this, to this banquet. She refused to come. So he summoned his wise men and said, what should we do? They said, well, if you, if you don't do something serious, every other woman in the, in the land is going gonna, is gonna to not, not come when called. So they banished her, and he chose another king. Or excuse me, another queen. Yes. <laughs> See, it was a serious offense not to enter the party. A serious and intentional offense. Actions that are speaking very loudly to the heart of the older brother. Let's go back to this text and see what else we can find. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. So his father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you, and never once refused to do a, thing, a single thing that you told me to. And in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Can you see the desires of the older brother and his heart coming out? First, he says, I've slaved for you. That word is a doulos, and it paints the picture of someone in servitude without their consent. It paints the picture of someone without the ability to be free. It's interesting because the Apostle Paul uses that exact same word in Romans 7, verse 25. 
And by exact same word, I mean the tense, the, uh, the derivative, all the other things that linguists love to study. It's the same word exactly. Second half of that verse says this. Paul says, so you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. A slave to sin. Servitude without consent. Now it's possible that the older brother thought as the oldest son, his rights had been assigned to him by his dad. And he didn't have the ability to leave the home like the younger son did. Maybe this older son was so driven by guilt, so driven by obligation or duty that he just couldn't leave. Maybe that's why he said, I have slaved for you. It doesn't sound like the boy had worked for his father all those years out of love. For his father. Doesn't sound like he had worked to bring pleasure to his father. It doesn't sound like he got up in the morning and went out to the field so that he could bring a smile to his father's face. Sounds like he had done it out of duty and obligation. Which on a on a side note, a little tangent, kind of makes us think, or it should make us think, about our own relationship with God the Father. What drives our actions towards him? Is it love or is it duty? Luke 15, 28 and 29. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing that you told me. The older son in the story says, Father, I've always done what is right. I am in the right here. He's claiming his own self-righteousness. Not too much longer later, Jesus would tell a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector who went to pray. And the, the gospel writer Luke prefaces that story with this. It says, Then Jesus told the story to someone who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Jesus told the story about someone who had great confidence in their own righteousness. Sound like the older brother at all? A little bit. I've done all things right, Dad. All of it. The second half of verse 29 says, And in all that time, you never gave me even one goat for a feast with my friends. I've done everything right, everything you've always asked me to do, and not once have you done anything for me, Dad. Not even a small goat. To hang out with my friends, you notice that this older son completely writes his younger brother and his dad out of the story. He says, I want to, he doesn't say, I want to have a party with you and my brother and, and the rest of my friends. He says, I want it with me and my friends. Kind of selfish, at least. That's the way I read it. So we're looking right now at the older son's anger in verse 28. And we ask the question, is it righteous and from God? Or is it driven from the flesh? If you can't answer that quite yet, we'll continue the story. You see, the older son is mad. He says he's always done everything daddy told him to do, and he wants his own little private party without the rest of the men in the family. And then he says this in verse 30. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. You see what he's doing? 
He's pointing fingers. He's pointing fingers. Dad, just in case you didn't catch that I said I always did everything you always asked me to do, look at what he's done. This son of yours is eating at Hooters for lunch and dinner and then hanging out at Sprague in the evenings. Dad, prostitutes. Not me, him. And then he moves the finger and says, and this son of yours, he spent all of your money and now you're welcoming him back. Not me, I've done everything right. Jesus isn't too fond of people pointing fingers at others. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own eye? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own? You hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye and then deal, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. I tell you what, I think that older brother has a pretty good sized log in his eye. And the saddest thing about this is, I don't even think he knew it, he had it in there. I think in his own mind, He was justified in his thoughts, his words, his actions. There's an author named Michael Hoodman that writes this. He says, It would be an understatement to say that every believer is plagued by this attitude. It is our sin nature to try and do something to merit our salvation. The costly freedom of grace bought for us by the blood of Jesus with no contribution from us is difficult for our prideful hearts to understand and appreciate. It is far easier to compare ourselves with one another than it is to recognize that we cannot measure up to the standards of a holy God. It is far easier to compare ourselves with one another than it is to recognize we cannot measure up to the standards of a holy God. The older brother says, look, Father, at what I've done compared to what he's done. And I say, yeah, let's look. He's angry. And it's not a godly anger. He's taken revenge in his actions. He's had some self-pity. I'm a slave. He's had some self-righteousness. I've done everything right. And then he started pointing fingers. This is why I think he was lost. You look at his actions and his words, and I think they're driving him closer and closer to utter destruction, to a permanent death, to a separation. And he doesn't even know it. I grieved over this son this week. And I grieved, I think, for two reasons. First, I think I know people like this older son. They live their lives and their own relationships with Jesus based on duty and obligation. They always follow the rules. And then they're quick to point out when people don't. They're quick to point fingers when others aren't following the rules. They're quick to judge people who may be wandering but perhaps not lost. They lack forgiveness of themselves and of others. And in all of this, they don't even recognize 
their state. I grieve for these people. Now secondly, and I think probably more so, I grieved because I fear that that could be my natural tendency. See, I've spent a lot of time in the church. I've grown up inside these walls, and I've got 30-plus years of following Christ, and I've followed the rules, and I, I think for me it'd be easy to say, oh, Lord, I'm, I'm doing this, but what about them? And that scares me. When a newspaper posed the question, what's wrong with the world, G.K. Chesterton wrote a very short response. He said, dear sirs, I am. That man had the gospel figured out. And he had a heart attitude that I want. He had a heart attitude that I want all of us in here to have also. I know that a lot of us in here have grown up in the church and, and we've been following the rules. And we've followed them quite well. We've, we've learned the verses. Here's where I want to encourage and here's where I want to caution us. I think oftentimes I fear less for the salvation of the person who's drug out of the gutter and meets Jesus and accepts that grace than I fear for the souls of people who sit in the church week in, week out. I fear that one day, they may not know it, but one day they're going to stand before their creator and say, look at what I've done. Just like the, young, the older boy did in the story. I think the longtime Christian must be reminded of their utter need for a Savior. In the book, The Prodigal God, that I mentioned last week, the author writes this, If, like the older brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and to be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper. He may be your example. He may even be your inspiration. But he is not your Savior. You are serving as your own Savior. Sounds to me like the older brother. I think many churches, a lot of churches in the West, have a lot of older brothers in them. For this week, I would encourage you guys, spend some time asking God, God, do I have any older brother tendencies in my own heart? And God, if I do, point them out. It's a risky prayer, because if you pray it and God points them out, He's going to expect you to work on them. He's going to expect you to change them. It'll be hard, but worth it. And even if you do change them, I want to remind you it's still only by the grace of God that you can stand before the Father. It is still only by the cross of Christ that allows you to enter the throne room of heaven. I gave the beginning part of a quote by Michael Hoodman earlier. I want to finish that quote. He wrote, It is far easier to compare ourselves with one another than it is to recognize that we cannot measure up to the standards of a holy God. However, he writes, in Christ we can know true righteousness. In Christ we can know the forgiveness of sin that comes to us through grace. Because Christ stood in our place, we benefit from both his sinless life and his sin-bearing death. Because of his sacrifice, we can face our sin and bring it to the cross rather than try to somehow be good enough for God. Only in the cross can we see the grace that covers all our sin and defeat the constant tendency to the self-righteousness in our hearts. We're going to move to a time now of remembering that cross of Christ and taking a communion together. 
In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and as I'm praying, I invite the worship team to come and and take communion before they start playing instrumentally. As they play, and when you're ready, I invite you to come forward, uh, take the bread and the cup. You can either eat it while you're up here or take it back to your own own seat. Whether you do that, uh, either way, I want to remind you that we take this meal together as a church to remember whether we relate more with the younger brother or the older brother. Jesus still welcomes us home to himself. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for this story. I thank you for the reminder given in the, in, the, in the person of the older brother that we too have to be aware, that we have to watch our own heart attitude. We've got to be aware of anger, self-righteousness, self-pity. Father, I ask that you would guard against that in our lives. I ask that you would help us this week see the places where they may spring up, where, where we may have an older brother tendency. I ask, Lord God, that you would help us to correct those things. And as hard as it may be, I ask that you would give us courage to face them. Jesus, we recognize that it doesn't matter how good we are. It is still the blood you shed on the cross, the broken body you gave to us that makes us right with you. We claim that this morning, having been reminded of that. We take this bread and this cup and we ask you to bless it. We take it to remember the sacrifice you gave. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, as the worship team plays, as you are ready, go ahead and come up. Take a cup, a piece of bread. I'll bring some around to those who cannot come up.